0: praise you and give you glory for this day that you've made, a day in which we can come and we can worship you, that we can pour forth the praise that you so rightly deserve. And we thank you that this day we can come and study your word, Uh, and as we see in our passage today, a word that is sweet. That we know the truth of your word is sweetness to us. That man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. We also see uh, in the midst of a book over the past several weeks we've seen uh, bitter plagues and trouble. That we've seen the harshness of your word. And we too feel that bitterness. That we have that... uh, welling up from inside of us when we see our fellow man stubbornly persist uh, in his and her sin the failure to repent in the face of your constant testimony so your word is sweet to us but it also has that bitterness as well as we study it this day we ask that you would give us insight into it That you would help it be sweetness to it. That you would feed us by this word. That you would strengthen us for your servant. That we would not just be hearers of your word. That we would be doers. And that we would be faithful bearers of it to the world around us. Even when that world uh, rejects it and hates us because of it. We ask uh, that you would... Fill us with your spirit that, as your people gathered in your midst, you would be present with us and that you would fill our hearts with understanding of your word. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, since we had a week off, and it's been a couple weeks um, since we've been in the book of Revelation, I thought um, this might be a, a good chance to sort of recap overall where we are in the book. So if you remember way, way back to chapter one, uh, there we saw that this book um, it, it starts with a series of greetings, just like uh, we would expect a New Testament epistle, and then it moves into that first revelation, and it's that startling revelation of Christ but Christ depicted as the Ancient of Days as we saw in the book of Daniel. Then uh, it moves into letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, which we talked about. Um, these seven particular churches stand in as proxies for all of us. And the emphasis of those letters and the encouragement given in them is to persevere in faithful witness in the face of increasing external persecution and internal uh, Uh, Turmoil come from people compromising their witness by um, different ways of uh, um, syncretizing their religious faith with the practices of the culture around them. Uh, then John moved into describing um, his being taken up to heaven in a vision where he sees uh, this glorious worship service that starts uh, with describing with these, this ongoing worship in heaven of God for creation and then moving on in chapter 5 to singing the praises of the Lion of Judah that he was uh, worthy to to solve this problem of this seven-sealed scroll that no one could open, but the lion could open it. The lion could open it because it was a slain lamb. Uh, In chapter six, we see the contents of that seven-sealed scroll start to be unfolded in a series of judgments unleashed upon humanity, starting off with those first four famous horsemen. um, uh, Conquest, war, famine, and pestilential death then moving into the martyrs crying out to God how much longer would their blood be shed. And then that sixth seal uh, where we see literally the sort of unraveling of creation and all of humanity from the greatest king to the least slave fleeing from the wrath of God. And then after that sixth seal, there's a pause. It doesn't immediately move into the seventh seal. We have this pause in, um, in chapter seven in which um, we have this description of how God seals these 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. So John hears this this number, and then he opens his eyes, and he sees this great multitude that no one can number uh, from every tongue, tribe, uh, an innumerable multitude that's been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. The seventh seal is finally broken in chapter 8, and we saw that it was uh, silent, um, silence itself, indicating uh, God's judgment. And we also saw, talked about that week, about the concept of reverse thunder, the ways, the description in chapter 8, of the ways the prayers of the saints uh, ascend from the altar of God and then come back upon the earth uh, in lightning and judgments. And then we're introduced to a new series of seven, a new series of seven plagues, this time being presented through the forms of seven trumpet blasts. Uh, the first four we saw were, were horrific and terrible, um, uh, mirroring the plagues that God inflicted upon the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. And, you know, those were bad. And then we see that uh, the. This announcement that, whoa, the first four is nothing. (laughs) "Woe" for the three that are coming. And two weeks ago, um, we saw the first two of those three woes, the the trumpets five and six, uh, which unleash these horrible creatures upon humanity that first torment and then kill people. And we were uh, amazed um, at the, the chapter ends with this expression of the hardness of the human heart, that even in the face of all this judgment, that people f- failed to repent. Again, like the, the plague account in Exodus where Pharaoh hardens his heart, uh, the people at the end of chapter 9 um, did not give up their idolatry, but clung to it. So we might expect, as we finish chapter 9 and we turn to chapter 10 today, that we would see the seventh trumpet. But just like after the sixth seal, we had the sort of pause to talk about, um, to focus in, in with the sixth seal after to talk about God's protecting of um, these sealed people. In our chapter today, we have another pause, and this pause is the focus of it is primarily on God's uh, revelation to man and the witness to that through his faithful prophetic witness. So with that said, um, let me read for us uh, chapter 10 of the book of Revelation. And uh, if you've got the CART Bible, it's on page 1033. So Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, and he called out the seven thunders sounded and when the seven thunders had sounded i was about to write but i heard a voice from heaven saying seal up what the seven thunders have said do not write it down and the angel whom i saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and swore by him, who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets." Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey." And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So, uh, our chapter starts off with this figure of a mighty, or some of your uh, translations might have uh, strong, This mighty angel. Who's this? (laughs) Who is this strong angel? What does John tell us about him in this depiction? What are some of the things we're told about this mighty angel?
1: Don't all, everybody speak at
0: once, you know. Calm down, take turns. Yeah, funny. Yeah, so we have the same phrase, mighty angel, had appeared earlier in uh, the Revelation, in chapter 5. In that scene, uh, again, as Ronnie reminds us, the scene where the problem of the sealed scroll, and the, it's the mighty angel in chapter 5 who says, you know, who's worthy to, to crack the scroll, and nobody can be found, and John starts to weep um, at that. So we've had the strong angel, um, so this could be that angel again. Um, we have this f- curious phrase, "another mighty angel." So, is, you know, that was the first one. This is our another one. What else are we told about this mighty angel? Yeah, Mike. He has uh, certain
1: accessories. <laughs>
0: yeah. What what kind of uh, what kind of bling accompanies this angel?
1: He's uh, he's wrapped in a cloud. like the legs, are like filled
0: of fire. So I don't think this is any ordinary angel. I'm thinking it's Jesus. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, let's work through this. I mean, uh, and, and let's work through why this might be an identification of Jesus. But these various elements, and as, as Mike says, the uh, accoutrements <laughs> borne by this, this angel, clothed in a cloud... Where do we usually see that in Scripture, that phrase, clothed in a cloud? God, uh, you know, to go back to Exodus for just to pick one example, you know, when this cloud envelops uh, the mountain and God speaks from the cloud or a New Testament um, example. And I'm going to be referring to uh, it's it's always bizarre, you know, in my Bible our Bible study on Matthew on Friday night. I kept thinking about Revelation (laughs) as I tried to understand chapter 17 of Matthew and we had that moment of Jesus' transfiguration uh, because, uh, you know, these verses here echo that moment and now as so on Friday I kept thinking about Revelation and today when we're in Revelation I keep thinking about Matthew. And in the transfiguration account uh, you have again this voice from a cloud signifying God's presence here in this cloud. Yeah, the, how that Israel's led. And we have uh, a, another kind of reference in that um, with the legs of this angel, pillars of fire. Again, we, when we hear pillars of fire, we go back to that Exodus account that God led Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of fire at night else might, uh, or or do we see? So, you know, when we see something clothed in cloud, usually it indicates God's presence, uh, God's immediate presence. Um, uh, uh, His presence, uh, especially in the Exodus account, and we get that again with the pillars of fire leading Israel. Yeah, Tim. Uh, So, yeah, so rainbow, a couple things. So uh, rainbow, the first time we encounter rainbow is in Genesis with uh, this is the sign of God's covenant promise never to flood the entirety of the earth again. So this reference to... um, to to God's promise, and you could also think of uh, the pillar of fire also being sort of a subtle reference to God faithfully doing what God says uh, He'll do. Um, so there's that element of of covenant promise in rainbow. You also get in the Old Testament uh, descriptions of God again as having a rainbow present. Um, flip with me, if you will, to the first chapter of Ezekiel. And there are uh, tons of connections between the first chapter, uh, first chapters of Ezekiel and chapter 10 of the book of Revelation. And the description we have of God's appearance to, to Ezekiel is, is one of those. Um, so, let's see, where should I start? So, verses 26-28. Uh, Over the expanse of their heads, so it described the, those creatures that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation as well. Uh, above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne its appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance and upward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of the rain so was the appearance of the brightness all around. So there again we have this description of God's presence to Ezekiel and uh, you know a rainbow being uh, part of that descriptor this this glorious refracting light. Yeah, James. We also have you
2: know, in 1 it says, um, the Lord himself will
0: an Yeah so in other New Testament passages signifying God's or Christ's second coming we have the same elements present here um, Good. So, one more. Uh, face of the sun. Where, is there any place we see that? Come on. You, need, you ought to know this. Where do we see face like a sun? Transfiguration. Transfiguration. Where this is, you know, Jesus is transfigured in a moment and suddenly he's clothed in white garments and he's shining and he has the face like a sun. Again, this sort of, this moment in which uh, these disciples get to see Jesus Jesus for who he really is. Jesus is described as having this kind of divine visage. So Mike suggested earlier that this could be Jesus. And those kinds of elements usually are what lead people to this attribution. That uh, this angel that we see in chapter 10 could be a representation uh, of Christ. Because the elements that are used to describe him are all used pretty much throughout Scripture only of God. Um, So if it's not Jesus, it's an angel whose presence signifies the very real presence of God. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, you have the walking on the water element. You also have... um, Uh, um, the display of authority that that brings. This is a statement of, of sovereignty. Uh, you think of the Old Testament, uh, to put your foot on, on something is to indicate your rule over it. Uh, you know, one of the best or most vivid examples of this is in the book of Joshua, where you have, you're nodding because you've been reading Joshua, uh, you have the conquest of these kings, they've been trapped in a cave. When they come out... Uh, Joshua has the leaders of Israel place their, their foot upon their necks before they're executed. Uh, you know, a very visual sign that, don't fear these guys. You know, you've been given authority over them. So this placement of feet, um, it, 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 especially foot over the sea, you know, walking on water. But also the, the assertion of sovereignty. And the way the scriptures pair sea and land together, usually when we see sea and earth paired together in scriptures, it's to emphasize the totality of creation. You know, the sea and the land, from the sea to the earth. Uh, and especially uh, those moments where um, God has given dominion uh, and, uh, and to Adam, You'll have dominion over all the creatures of the sea and land. You know, we think of that dominion often to the land, but as it's stated in Genesis, it's over sea and land. Uh, It's in the same promises to Abraham, and it's in the Davidic promises, both to David and especially to the... David's greater son, uh, this coming future king, uh, who's prophesied of uh, Psalm seventy-two is a great uh, descriptor of the sovereignty of that coming king and how it will cover the seas and the land. So you know the the again the the sign um, or the description of this angel. Having a foot on the land and the sea is extremely significant in revealing uh, who this figure is and what this figure represents. Sovereignty over the entire earth, land and sea. And we see that backwards, and it also is important going forwards, because in a couple of chapters, we're going to see some really horrific beast. <laughs> well, the beast is going to come from the sea. Uh, so again, it's in the statement of sovereignty, it's queuing us in. This sovereignty extends over land and sea. There's nothing outside the dominion of this figure. And even those horrible things that seem to have free reign in the coming chapters are lackeys under orders. You supposed to take
2: anything from, you know, his appearance in the sense that pillars of fire and the sun is
0: this, you know, supposed to be shadowing judgment? I mean again, I think the the descriptors Indicate God's presence, and then this sort of posture indicates the sovereignty. So I think it's, you know, again, it's sort of we've had this description of these. We've just had this description of these horrible things that are on the earth, and you know we're taking this pause, and in that pause we're again having this assertion of God's presence, God's sovereignty, God standing on sea and land. Uh, so as, as as to speak, um, and you know, what's coming, what this figure is going to reveal. Um, so it's it's both this sort of assertion of God's sovereignty, but also God's uh, revelation to humanity. And the you know we haven't talked yet about this little open book. In in the angel's hands and that's gonna come into play at the end of this this chapter but the sort of revealing posture uh, of this angel and that um, the angel uh, cries out in the middle that the mysteries of God would be fulfilled again sort of that you know all of revelation will come to its ultimate completion. And we're not shown anything particularly destructive about these I don't pillars of know fire. What
1: the size of this angel was. A note here says that maybe he calls the scroll a little
0: scroll because this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think he's one of the little. Pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, I, I kept having this, uh, you, know, you know, the Colossus of Rhodes kept popping up in my head as I was reading this, um, you know, this wonder of the ancient world. Um, it's, you know, you know, that of being a figure that's, you know, sort of straddling the sea and this sort of, you know, having that same kind of enormous uh, presence um, yeah, but I didn't think about the littleness and the size. Um, I, I had to, i was MC for the Amago fundraising dinner last night, and so um, they wanted me to have cowboy jokes on hand because it was a country western kind of thing. So I, I had a joke, but Dana doesn't want me to tell it, I probably, <laughs> about the Canadian the cowboy. I won't tell that one. But the size, the thinking of the size, it's about a Canadian who goes to Texas where everything's bigger. Um, come later, I'll tell y'all. <laughs> Off mic. Um, <laughs> back so we've got this so our chapter starts off with this figure of an angel Um, and this this figure bearing all these markers of that we closely associate with God's presence throughout the Old Testament and the New these are the signs that indicate God is here Um, so and you know we can take it as this is Jesus Or if it's not Jesus, then this is, you know, not just any angel, but this is an angel that signifies God's very real presence. All right. So um, in the middle of the chapter, we have this angel speak. And the first time we hear it speak, seven thunders sound forth. And John, being the dutiful recorder of visions he is it's all ready to okay about to write them down and he's commanded not to write them down what do we make of this These seven thunders um, and we've seen you know seven seals we're in the middle of seven trumpets we're going to have seven bowls later on that john is recording the contents of these these visions he has seven thunders here, and he's commanded not to write them down. You know, is this like, you know, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, guess what I learned? <laughs> I learned something about, you know, James Glover that I can't tell you. <laughs> is that, what's going on with this? Yes, yeah, Sandy. Okay, um, so as we sort of think about um, you know what this that even in the midst of this revelation that we're having this revelation to John, there are some things that God keeps hidden. That some things remain secret. What else might it be? Yeah, James. My assumption
2: was, um, i not I thought Was that it was stuff that was happening. Tell, you know, there's some element of this, what's going on here? It's it's a future occurrence. So to tell it would
0: be too affected, or uh you know, God wouldn't to reveal that part of the future. Okay, so it indicates some future activity um that John is given a glimpse of, but um for the sake of human history, he's not to reveal that. Um uh.
2: Prophecies and he tells us some things,
1: but very obviously, I'm not going to tell you that. That's how God is. I think that's how he deals with us. That may be frustrating to us, um, but I think it keeps us in the God man that we are just a completely subservient and not. Even... It is right and just for God to.
0: Yeah, so this is, uh, and again, I've been thinking a lot about Matthew in terms of of, of these things. You know, all those times in the Gospels where, you know, again, the, for our Bible study Friday night, we were doing the Transfiguration, and right after Transfiguration, Jesus's first word to the disciples is, "Don't tell anyone." <laughs> um, you know, here they get to see this miraculous, amazing sign from heaven—the very sign the Pharisees had been clamoring for in the prior chapter in Matthew—and don't get. They get it, and then they're told, whoop, <laughs> not to talk about
1: it. i to go along with what she said. It's, it, it's requiring us to live by faith and not by sight. If we knew everything, we wouldn't have to live by faith. It
2: would be by sight. We'd know it all and, you know. So. Yeah, so. Well, in our human nature, when somebody says, I'm going to tell you something, but don't tell anyone else, First thing we want to do is tell somebody else. And so there may be an exercise of discipline here for John, of, of, of the angel saying, "Do not write this down. This is not for you to speak of now." And John has to discipline himself in his human, in his humanness.
0: Yeah, and that, um, because one of the things that's happening in chapter 10, the focus is on John's prophetic role, um, especially at the end of the chapter with this uh, action of eating the scroll that's in the angel's hand. Um, That is typical of prophetic calling accounts. So, I mean, it could be part of the disciplining of a prophet. That Some things I'm going to show you you can't talk about, but that should encourage you, when I do command you to speak other things, that you will do it faithfully. So it could, there could be this relationship of disciplining the prophet, in this case, John being that prophetic figure. Yeah, James.
2: Is it, is it because this is the end, right? But he swears that there will be no more delay, you know? um, and that the, the last trumpet, you know, there's no more delay, that
0: yeah I think it definitely refers to the because the, the um, a, as you say the uh, the the telling of him not to reveal this is followed by there's you know, this is it. There's no more delay. The, the end is now. The seventh trumpet's going to be bla- gonna blast. It's going to be over. Um, and some people have taken that even to the extent that God had another whole series of judgments sort of planned. They showed John, and was like, nah. <laughs> let's get to the end. So, you know, sort of skipping a chapter. Um, so some people have suggested that, that it's not just, it's not that God's hiding some judge or hiding something from us that there was sort of God's hastening the, uh, some read it as sort of God hastening the end. And there was sort of a seven series, another seven series of plagues that maybe in light of man's persistent uh, hardness of heart, you know, the no repentance, that, you know, no, no more, no more uh, thunders. Uh, no more warnings, unless there's not going to be delay any longer. We're going to jump right, right to the end. Yeah? Yeah, some people are, have connected those two passages, sort of saying... There, there's ineffable uh, things going on that, you know, things too glorious to be spoken of um, are too, or you know, beyond human comprehension. Um, and they use John uh, or Paul being caught up into heaven like that to sort of. As another example of here, someone gets this, sees something in heaven, and can't talk about it. And and the the Pauline account, the emphasis is really on, you know, words cannot utter. It's it's ineffable. You can't speak of these things. Um, Whereas here, it's the emphasis seems to be a little more on the command not to speak of these things. That that would be the one difference I would point between the two passages. Yeah. See God and
2: live that this may have been so revelatory that
0: it would be as your own peril. Yeah, the, the danger in it, um, which goes back to, to, I think what James was saying earlier, that you know, this, the revelation of this is uh, the people knowing this would not be a good thing. <laughs> um, that it, it has to remain hidden in certain ways. But it's interesting, we have, uh, you know, this emphasis on sealing up this particular uh, revelation, um, what these seven thunders sounded forth, that sealed up, when the rest of the book, is focused on making things known. And indeed, you know, we're told um, in verse 7, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Or as the book ends, the, you know, the book ends with this note, don't let the words of this prophecy be sealed. Um, you know, that this has got to be shown forth. So it, it, there's this... Um, strange contrast here between the ceiling of this one particular revelation versus what we also have that the mysteries of God are being revealed and everything the prophets longed to see and had no, you know, Daniel uses the word mystery a lot, um, how these things are mysteries to him and those mysteries are being fulfilled in this chapter. I think this, uh, you know, again, sort of why this pause and this particular pause, you know, if that last pause was to emphasize uh, God's protecting of his people in the midst of these horrible judgments, I think this pause is emphasizing on uh, God's revelatory witness, and in this case, through the presence of his prophet John. Um, And we see John's special calling, and there are a lot of um, similarities between this chapter, in chapter 5, you know, where we also saw a figure, a an strong angel holding a scroll, but in that, John was purely spectator. Um, he's purely on the sidelines, you know, he's asking questions, uh, you know, he's weeping, um, you know, elders are consoling him, but he's sort of, you know, he's observer, as you said. Whereas here, the emphasis is on his participation, and his participation um, not just in, uh, in revealing the judgments, but to sort of think of it in bringing the judgments about. Um, you know, so it's a very active presence in that sense. Yeah, Victor? is
1: in Testament
0: Prophetic, symbolic prophetic action is usually the technical label. Um, you know, Old Testament scholars attach to those things. But you're absolutely right. We see it over and over again in uh, the Old Testament. And uh, this chapter here with um, John's eating of the scroll is almost exactly like that uh, with Ezekiel. That he has to eat a, a scroll. And in the same kind of language, that scroll tastes sweet to him. But then the sweetness is contrasted with the woe and destruction that's written upon it. You know, these bitter events um, that, uh, that are written on Ezekiel's scroll. But, uh, and if... Let's see. Yeah, we don't have time to go there. But just to give you the reference if you want to look later. So that's in Ezekiel 2 8 to 3 3. You see, uh, as part of Ezekiel's commission as a prophet, eating a scroll. Um, Jeremiah is also described as eating uh, sweet words of God, but in you know, the very next verse, talking about his bitter anger. Um, you know, in, in that case, the anger coming from Israel's stubborn refusal to repent. Here, God has given sweet words to call Israel back, and Israel continues to rebel, and this angers Jeremiah. Um, So uh, you're absolutely right, Victor. There's precedent for this kind of symbolic action over and over again, and its presence here symbolizes, um, you know, we're taking a pause to symbolize John's purpose as a prophet. Uh, You know, we've had little commissioning verses, you know, uh, in chapter 1, you know, write down what you see, and in chapter 4 there's another little verse, but here we're seeing, you know, one of those more formal Old Testament lengthy descriptions of a prophet being commissioned to speak God's very word, to internalize it and then speak it forth, to not leave anything unhidden. (coughs) What else? Um, since we've moved into the, the um the skull diet. we um.
2: <laughs> <laughs> think that because it's bitter and stunning, that it's a message of judgment as opposed to uh, before we had a mixed message of people standing around the throne saying salvation belongs to our God. You know, is is that is that over now or uh, should we expect it to
0: I, 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 you're turning to the exact question. Why, you know, the sweetness we can understand. I mean, you know, again, the Old Testament, when it talks about us consuming God's words, when it likens our um, reading of the word or hearing of the word to eating of it, it's almost always described as sweet. But here that sweetness is, is marked with bitterness. So maybe that, you know, in our last couple of minutes, to think about what makes this, the sweetness uh, or this thing that tastes so sweet in the mouth, bitter in John's stomach. And he's told, again, it's not you know, just his personal experience. He's told, you're going to consume this, sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. He consumes it, sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. So, I mean, it's, it's not an unexpected reaction. But where does this bitterness come from? What does this bitterness mean? Is it judgment? Judgment? Um, is it the judgment that the scroll contains? And the f- last time we saw the word bitter, uh, if you'll remember, was in the seven trumpets. Um, you know, the, the the waters becoming bitter, um, you know, as part of the judgment. Uh, So, is the bitterness because of the content of the scroll? And again, Ezekiel is described as eating a a scroll that, you know, we're told the contents of that scroll. On that scroll is written, woe and judgment. Um, So is the bitterness coming from the content of what he's consuming? That this is a scroll about judgment that is bitter. In the presence
1: of the Lord, and you have the Lord, and He is saying, "I'm with you." you follow it, and you know what? Terrible things God. God is with you, but.
0: Yeah, and some people uh, talk about how, you know, again, he has to consume this, and it's not just for his personal consumption. He's consuming it as a prophet, which means he has to go speak it forth. And, you know, with Jeremiah, it's sort of the the focus is on the reaction. (laughs) You know, speaking God's words, speaking God's brings bitter reaction. It's going to bring all kinds of hardship. It's going to bring difficulty. It's going to bring opposition. It could even bring death. Yeah, prophets are, you know, it's not, you're going to be a prophet. Oh, great. (laughs) Lifestyles of the, no, not lifestyles of the rich and famous. (laughs) You know, uh, again, Jeremiah is a great example of this. You know, he gets the call of a prophet, he's like, oh, No. (laughs) Why me? Can't you send somebody else? Being a prophet stinks. Um, You know, there is the bitterness of being God's prophet, being God's witness um, does not bring, you know, the plaudits of humanity. It doesn't bring the praise of men. It brings death and destruction. So could the bitterness be because of that? Not the content is what's bittering, but the reaction that you know having this calling is going to produce. It is going to bring forth bitterness. <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah the difficulty.
1: Yeah, look. Really
0: yeah, that this is the, and I think, think you're right, uh, and, and we had, we didn't talk either about the sort of littleness of the scroll, other than my little joke about, you know, you know, it's the scroll diet—you only eat little ones, not the big ones. Um, but the the little, um, I think we're right to sort of read. Uh, again, and to, to to James's thing, this particular prophetic call that we're going to see the the following chapters, which are really some of the harshest chapters in the entire book, um, 11 through 16. Um, so that's the content. So it's placed. I think you're right. It's placed at this moment in this book because of. What's going to come subsequently? This. He has to be recommissioned as God's prophet at this moment. He has to eat this particular scroll at this moment. And we're going to see sort of the, the contents of that coming in the next few chapters, particularly, I say 11 through 16, because there's another kind of moment um, where he's commissioned again. Uh, we have another kind of prophetic uh, symbolic action taking place uh, later in the book. Yeah, Mike?
1: Uh, what comes to mind, to me anyway, is uh, the scroll is sweet and it's bitter. It's both. It's got both characteristics. And, uh, uh, looking back at Ezekiel, uh, it's the Son of Man who is uh, told to eat the scroll. And we know that the Son of Man refers to. And when look at God and his work for us, we get two pictures of it. Uh, Paul says, for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. And his food was to do the will of his body, <laughs> which was the sweet part of it. It was a joy to do the will of his body. But at the same time, there would be great suffering. Uh, that the God of the universe would
0: he weeps over it, yeah. causes tears so, of blood. I think it's, it could relate to that part
1: that there's two sides to it. Uh, so I, I don't know. That's just... I think that's true in Christian life. God never says, "Okay, I'm Christian. He has, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be persecution. That is how I'm going to go." It's it's the
0: sweetness that we
1: do have the Lord we don't have assurances that everything is different. we have assurances that
0: Yeah, and to think, and I, I think you're absolutely right to sort of think about both in terms of specifically Christ and the path to the cross and what he had to do, and also our path. Again, you know, we're we're told to take up our crosses. Um, you know, the expectation being our sweet service to Christ is going to involve bitter hardship, um, and we're not to be surprised of it because. Uh, you, again, as Mike says, you know, Christ's sweet service to do the will of God the Father involved him taking up this bitter journey uh, to, to Gethsemane. Um, I, I like that. I like this idea, you know, that it's, you know,
2: similar to the struggles that we have. It also feels like, um, you know, day by day we have these challenges and struggles, but it comes to an end not just that our life comes to end, but that there's a final judgment. There's a, you know what I mean? There's a time when that won't be the case anymore, right? When it won't be the daily ups and downs or whatever, right? That God is going to come in some, you know, in this sort of epic uh, judgment that is very different, feels like very different than
0: our sort of daily uh, ups and downs or battles There's finality to it there's end and it's it's coming um, which again goes back to you know we, to john's role in this it's not just to you know to be another prophet you know this is it this is the last prophet this is the and it's not the last prophet you know just sort of um, condemning you know one particular moment but the last prophet who's talking about the final uh, judgment and condemnation. Um, so, t- yeah, to think of the finality of it. It
2: Also reminds me of the at the end when it says, you know, let those that are guilty be filthy, let those that are evil
1: be evil, let those that are righteous be
2: righteous.
1: You know, until the
0: end. Yeah, this final moment. Um, Alright, well, as we close, I also want us to sort of think, again, you know, I describe this as a pause, you know, in the midst of these judgments that are coming, you know, the seven trumpets, you know, we've had this pause. And don't miss the grace in that structure. Um, again, you know, we can sort of sometimes, you know, get bogged down in the, the details. But, here we have this moment. I mean, and you know, it could almost be over. It is overwhelming to sort of read of all these horrible things again and again. And you know, uh, uh, Jay Wanick's brother was here um, a couple of weeks ago, and and he was here for the the first four trumpets. And he's like, "Yeah, Revelation is as dark and scary as I thought it would be." <laughs> um, and, you know, if, if it was just that chapter, that would be. And if it was just the chapters that are immediately going to follow, I mean, we, we've got more of that sort of dark, scary. But, you know, here we have this pause, and it's a pause that, that emphasizes um, God's sovereignty and the emphasis on God's uh, giving of his word. Um, that, look, this is the, um, the bringing of the mysteries to an end. The prophecies are all going to be fulfilled. It's all coming to its planned conclusion, and I'm including you in that. You know, I'm, I'm not leaving you um, without a map. Uh, I'm not leaving you without guidance. I am sending my witness to you. And that witness for us is John. So don't miss the the grace in the structure here that in the midst of this judgment that God pauses. And that pause, the emphasis is on God's open witness to us. Let me close this in prayer. Almighty God, uh, like the churches that we've seen earlier in the book of Revelation, we too confess of our uh, ease in compromising your witness um, by our behaviors and by not being uh, true and stating our beliefs. And here we have um, this prophetic action by your servant John, uh, who consumes the scroll, uh, and the message uh, upon that is sweet on his lips, but also causes bitterness of, of the soul, the bitterness of his insides. Lord God, we understand uh, that that is, uh, that is the message, that's the irony of your kingdom, that is the sweetness of our salvation is only accomplished through the bitterness of, Of your son on the cross. That the sweetness that we experience. Of your sustaining hand. Of your enduring guiding presence in our lives. uh, Conflicts with the bitterness of our circumstances. The results of ours and others sin. On this earth. And as this uh, book. This revelation to your servant John. uh, Emphasizes that there is a finality to these things. That though we uh, go through them day to day as sort of a never ending series of struggles, we know that you have set an end to them, that you know the day and the hour, that you know that moment in which all of history will be consummated, all your promises will be kept. All prophecies will be fulfilled, and all that remains closed and mysterious to us now will be seen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray. Amen.